It's October 29th, 2015, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today we're talking to Craig Atwood. Craig is um, an associate professor in the Division of Geriatrics and Gerontology at the University of Wisconsin Medical School in Madison and uh, health sciences specialist at the VA Hospital in Madison, too. Hi, Craig. Hi. Nice to be here. Craig's work combines uh, studies on aging biochemical control of cell division and differentiation and the re reproductive system and its hormones to understand Alzheimer's disease, but also a lot of other aging-related issues, including just human longevity in general. And he's recently offered a general hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease that explains the relationship between genetic and sporadic forms of the disease. And I guess that's mainly what we'll be talking about today. Um, around the room, our own uh, UTSA faculty, Fidel Santa Maria. Hi, how are you? And George Perry. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson, standing in for Salma Karashi while she's on sabbatical. So, Craig, uh, Hyung Gun Lee was just here last April and explained to us how an abortive attempt by neurons to re enter the cell cycle could lead to cell death and degeneration. And so I get it that cell differentiation is not just a one-time permanent change in cells, even in neurons, but it's something that has to be actively maintained all the time. So just to get us started, would you explain to us what maintains cell differentiation in the brain and elsewhere, and how it could become dysregulated in Alzheimer's disease uh, in either the familial or late forms, or maybe in both forms? Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, the dysregulation of the cell cycle seems to be, you know, very much key to understanding uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, it, it's seen um, in, in late onset Alzheimer's disease. And back in the early 2000s, we were very intrigued by all the data coming through indicating that um, there was an upregulation in chromosomal number, that there was an increase in perhaps uh, mitochondrial biogenesis and that the many other pathways that are associated with the cell cycle were, were, were increased in these terminally differentiated pyramidal neurons in the AD brain. And so we really set about trying to understand what signals might drive a, a, a terminally differentiated neuron back into the cell cycle. And it appears that uh, reproductive hormones are, are the factors that uh, drive um, neurons back into the cell cycle. This is perhaps not surprising because it's well known that hormones regulate cell division and, and death. Uh, we only need to think of reproductive tissues and um, cancer biology to, to understand that sex steroids, for example, have a, a great impact on whether a, uh, a cell will divide or not. And so, um, based on some clinical uh, information and some uh, bench work, it, uh, it was found that luteinizing hormone and the elevations in luteinizing hormone seem to be really pivotal to, to driving these neurons back into the cell cycle. Um, it's not just the elevation in luteinizing hormone, it's also the loss of uh, the sex steroids, uh, estradiol and, and the other sex steroids, 
that lead to the, the loss of negative feedback on the hypothalamus and pituitary that drives these elevations in luteinizing hormone. So it's really the ratio of these hormones and the change in the ratios that appear to, to impact cell cycle dynamics. Um, to get back to your uh, original question, um, it, it appears that uh, differenti a differentiated event is, is not just permanent and that um, depending on which um, regulators of the cell cycle, such as sex steroids, whether they're present or not, will really determine uh, if, a, if a neuron remains uh, in a um, undifferentiated or in a uh, non-dividing state or whether it actually you know, does uh, move into the, uh, the cell cycle. So it seems almost like a fragile arrangement in which our neurons are constantly requiring our sex hormones in order just to stay healthy, normal neurons. Yeah. Isn't it a hazard? I mean, when, uh, when people's uh, in youth, when sex hormones are disrupted, say, because of uh, gonadectomy or something like that, does that lead to Alzheimer's disease or something like that? There, there's definitely um, data out there indicating that if you go through menopause earlier, or that if you have uh, an oophorectomy, um, that you are at greater risk of developing uh, multiple age-related diseases earlier, including Alzheimer's disease, and that you'll actually have a, a shorter lifespan. Uh, uh, the reverse of this is if you look at um, hormone replacement therapies, it's been shown in over 16 studies that if you take uh, estrogen replacement therapy that you'll actually live longer. And so, yes, our bodies are in this, uh, appear to be in this fragile state based upon our reproductive hormones, but um, it's, it's in some ways it's a beautiful system to, to keep us uh, functioning and um, reproducing, but when we are no longer able to, to reproduce, uh, these, uh, when, once we lose the follicles and um, Leydig and Sertoli cells in, in, the, in the testes, this is the trigger for the dysregulation of the reproductive hormones and is really the, uh, um, the signal to take us out of the gene pool. So what's the connection to the familial forms of Alzheimer's disease? So the familial forms of Alzheimer's disease, which are driven by uh, point mutations in, in one of three genes, either the amyloid precursor protein, presenilin-1 or presenilin-2 um, are also mutations in proteins that are well known to regulate the cell cycle. And so uh, it's perhaps not surprising that uh, point mutations in these particular proteins uh, alter cell cycle dynamics and also drive neurons to attempt to divide. They also upregulate amyloid beta, uh, as is the case with uh, sporadic late-onset Alzheimer's disease. So there are parallels, and so on the one hand, with uh, early-onset Alzheimer's disease, we have these point mutations driving cell cycle uh, dysregulation. Uh, and on the other hand, with late-onset Alzheimer's disease, we have hormonal changes that are driving the cell cycle uh, dysregulation. And so... I think this is a, uh, a way of explaining both diseases under one sort of roof, so to speak, uh, via cell cycle changes. You know, so, but they don't divide, right? The cells, they just like get into the S stage, 
They can uh, replicate their DNAs. They do all that stuff. Is there like evidence that, I mean, that sounds to me that they're doing a lot of work. So the metabolic rate of those areas should go up. Is there, I mean, some evidence uh, of that? I'm not aware of evidence. There uh, is George, actually, yeah. mm -hmm. it's a very strange path that's been shown by imaging studies. Uh -huh, yeah. And before people have the disease, generally there's a slight depression in metabolism. Uh -huh. During mild cognitive impairment, metabolism actually goes higher. Oh, okay. And then it goes back down. So that, well, when the cells start dying, I guess. Well, even oh. before. Uh -huh. Cell death, oh, okay. so even cell before. death and Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. actually are not well correlated. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. There are cells everywhere that are being affected by these same things, not just in the brain and, uh, and also everywhere in the brain. So do we see you know, peripheral symptoms of Alzheimer's disease that are caused by the same kinds of things, or is the, the brain especially vulnerable to this? Uh, I think all tissues of the body are, are vulnerable to these changes in reproductive hormones as, as we age. For, for some time, we were very focused on what was happening, you know, neurologically with these changes. But, you know, uh, we recognized um, that the receptors for all the hormones of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis are actually present on, on all tissues of the body. So any change in these hormones, such as might occur around menopause, is also going to impact not only the brain, but uh, all other tissues of the body. And so uh, from this, you know, uh, myself and a colleague, Richard Bowen, developed a, a theory of aging called the reproductive cell cycle theory of aging, which has as its basic premise that the reproductive hormones that drive our growth and development early in life in order for us to become reproductively viable later in life when they become dysregulated drive our senescent phenotype and so these hormonal changes are actually driving these aberrant cell cycle events in every tissue of the body and so um, for example we've shown um, that if you castrate uh, mice um, that you can uh, change the cerebrovasculature such that the blood-brain barrier is no longer uh, you know, selectively permeable. And if you inject these animals with Evans blue dye, they actually um, take up the Evans uh, blue dye into the brain. So these changes are not only impacting uh, neuronal and other well, neuronal structures, but they also appear to be uh, impacting the vasculature. At this point, uh, it's speculation as to whether this might be impacting the heart. Now, the heart contains cardiomyocytes, which is another very differentiated tissue like neurons. Um, and there is evidence that there are cell cycle changes in the heart, but nobody has correlated the hormonal changes or generated uh, data to show that the hormonal changes are driving these cell cycle uh, events in, in, in cardiomyocytes. But what we do know is that the neurons uh, get through to the, the G2S phase and cannot undergo cytokinesis to form two daughter cells. And I think the same thing is happening with cardiomyocytes. Uh, they can, cannot form two, uh, two daughter cells. And so they have this signal, though, to uh, draw in a lot of lipids and cholesterol for the formation of the membranes of the daughter cells. And so they just continue to draw in uh, fats and of course, you know, these develop into foam cells 
Uh, you get arteriosclerosis and eventually, you know, the compromise of that area leading to a heart attack. So I think that's very uh, strong evidence. But there, there is another group that has been working on follicle-stimulating hormone and the elevations in follicle-stimulating hormone. So FSH is another gonadotropin-like LH produced by the pituitary. It also becomes markedly elevated after menopause and, and with andropause in men. And what they have uh, found is that FSH drives um, a change in the ratio of osteoclasts to osteoblasts. And so uh, I think there is an elevation in osteoclasts, which are the, uh, is the, is the uh, bone cell type that shuttles calcium and phosphate out of bones and, and a decrease in osteoblasts. And so as this ratio changes, you get a net movement of calcium and phosphate out of the bones and obviously we develop osteoporosis. So for many years it was thought that this was being driven by estradiol and it's not that estradiol is not important but as the ratio of estradiol to FSH changes, FSH again being mitogenic is, is driving the production and so that explains again, these hormonal changes again explain how we might develop osteoporosis. In terms of, of, of cancer, um, these hormones have well-known functions in, in regulating uh, immune responses, and obviously our immune surveillance decreases with age. Again, it has not been demonstrated whether or not uh, these hormonal changes are, are driving down our immune surveillance, but um, I bet that you know this is probably the case, and so this is why we see a a marked increase in carcinogenesis as we as we get older. Uh, although some folks do get cancer, you know, before um, menopause, it's actually quite a small uh, proportion uh, compared to the number that develop uh, cancer. Craig, Craig, can you discuss the difference between males and females, humans, you know, and hormones yeah. as we age and how that impacts this? Thing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the interesting uh, factors to, to consider is, is the dysregulation of these hormonal axes. Um, in, in women, it's, it's, it's much more abrupt. It occurs over a few-year period around menopause, and so there are, are very large elevations in LH, FSH, and, and, and uh, declines in sex steroids and inhibitors. In males, andropause starts at about age 30, and we lose about 1% to 2% of our testosterone and presumably our inhibin uh, levels, uh, circulating levels, every year thereafter. And, uh, and what's interesting is that the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease is, is uh, much greater in, in women than it is in men. And it could be attributed to the, um, the earlier and more abrupt changes in the HPG axis that occur at the time of menopause. And in fact, in our studies where we actually measure estradiol levels uh, in, in men and women, uh, obviously the concentrations are very low uh, in postmenopausal women. They're around you know, castration levels. Uh, but the concentrations of estradiol in, in, in males is significantly higher. It's, it's two to five-fold higher than uh, in, in, uh, in women. So uh, that indicates that the male axis just has not become dysregulated as, 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 as much as the female uh, axis, and, and again, could explain why men are less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. So can we connect some of this back to the 
sort of standard things that people say about Alzheimer's disease, the plaques and tangles and uh, thinning of the cortex and resistance to other parts of the brain to degeneration. Are those things all make sense inside of this view? Uh, yeah, I, I think these hormonal changes are impacting all, you know, parts of the brain, they're impacting the vasculature, they're impacting neurons, um, and they might even be impacting um, the choroid plexus, which is another, you know, important uh, component of, of, the, of the brain and, and in CSF production. There's a lot of work coming through suggesting that um, the um, blockage of the choroid plexus in a way is is, is, is is consistent with the development of Alzheimer's disease and and so one has to wonder if these hormonal changes are actually uh, impacting the choroid plexus and and uh, and leading to, to to Alzheimer's disease so it's a very complicated system of hormones and it's not just one hormone or two hormones so I guess intervening in this is a little bit complicated but it but if you're right it sounds as though a way of delaying Alzheimer's disease, there's a very straightforward way of delaying Alzheimer's disease, just by correcting the hormonal imbalances. Yes, you know, if we could completely rebalance the axis or maintain the axis imbalance for longer, then um, we would absolutely be able to uh, delay cognitive decline uh, in, in humans. And again, data demonstrating that if you go through menopause later, um, uh, you, you have a, a, a much lower risk of, of developing Alzheimer's disease is, is very supportive of that. The question, of course, is well, how do we rebalance the whole axis? At the moment, we use pharma, uh, pharmaceutical or pharmacological solutions. We can come in with uh, estradiol replacement therapy or testosterone or androgen replacement therapy. But we have to recognize that, you know, there are upward of a hundred hormones being produced by the ovaries or the testes. And so if we come in with androgen replacement therapy or estrogen replacement therapy, we're really only rebalancing a portion of the axis and a portion of those hormones. So it's certainly um, better than not doing anything at all. And again, there are many studies out there showing that really the only effective strategy to, to halt um, or at least delay cognitive decline is, is through hormonal strategies. There are uh, three or four um, papers that have, have looked at uh, estrogen replacement therapy, all of which that have shown uh, beneficial uh, effects on one uh, form of, of cognitive performance or another. And the same with men. Again, those studies is only two or three, and they're much smaller. But again, they show dramatic improvements in in, in cognitive performance. So, um, the therapies are there to actually uh, starve off uh, cognitive uh, decline, and um, and they're not perfect, but they can certainly they're in place now, and, and they can be used. Another therapy that we've been working with is, uh, is luprolide acetate or Lupron. This lowers gonadotropin levels um, uh, significantly. It's uh, otherwise known as chemical castration. And, and uh, the idea with this um, drug is to um, not necessarily lower the sex steroids, but to get back 
into balance the ratio of the sex steroids to the gonadotropins. Uh, a little bit uh, like what happens with caloric restriction. So caloric restriction extends longevity and also delays cognitive decline. Um, and caloric restriction works by suppressing the HPG axis to, to, to lower levels um, um, in case uh, there is a, um, a better environment later on for which the animal to reproduce. There's no point reproducing in an environment where um, there are no you know, food resources, for example. So any stress will lower the HPG axis and, and uh, spare you know, follicles, for example, in the case of the female situation. Uh, until a, a later time when hopefully um, resources are, are more abundant. And so Lupron sort of acts in that way by suppressing the axis. And it's not a matter of whether the hormones are all high or all low, it's the ratio of those hormones in keeping the neurons um, from you know, re-entering the cell cycle uh, aberrantly. But, but, but what is... So... So I, I just want to, under, I mean, probably there is no answer, but I just want to get your impression of, so why they want, they want to enter the, the cell cycle, right? I mean, they can probably uh, produce tau, extra tau, but if, if cell death is not correlated with dementia, right, or, or clearly correlated with dementia, then what poorly, is causing... Poorly correlated. It's poorly correlated. So what is, what is causing the dementia, the right? So correlation they, is said to be synapse loss. So, so then, also, I mean, this is what I'm thinking. Like, so the energy consumption, because they're going into the S phase, is being drawn out of the uh, uh, axonal arborization, and then you can have loss of, of boutons and, and then synapses. Functional, I mean. So we have to remember there's two aspects to uh, um, cognitive decline, perhaps. One is... The, the loss of, of, of cell structures, but the second is the dysfunction of those cells. And it's not necessarily that cells have been lost, as George uh, indicates, there's a poor correlation between uh, cell loss and, um, and uh, Alzheimer's. There's a better correlation between synapse loss mm -hmm. and, and Alzheimer's disease or cognitive decline. And, and so the way that I view um, this is that the neurons aren't necessarily lost, but they've become dysfunctional, and they're no longer able to, you know, perform the normal functions that they were performing, you know, in the first few decades. So it's, I guess uh, when the cell enters the S phase, probably there's a lot of changes in gene expression. Some of the neuron-specific genes aren't expressed as much anymore, or so. Whenever a cell divides, it tends to shut down its functions because obviously, you know, the division process is really, you know, uh, takes a lot of energy and, and it, you, the cell is redirecting all of its resources towards forming two daughter cells. And so I believe that's what's happening with, with neurons is that um, when they get this signal to divide, the, the functions of, of, of transporting um, neurotransmitters or releasing neurotransmitters is, is probably compromised significantly. Is DNA in like euchromatin or heterochromatin at that, does, is it known if it is folded or if it's still um, just uh, open? Because that, that, will, that will be consistent, right? I mean, is, it cannot produce more mRNA or it's dysfunctional in terms of, 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 of transcription, right? And then in the long run, 
Yeah, that's the problem is I'm not going to do that. Yeah, that's a great question, mm -hmm. and, and to my, I don't know of any studies that have addressed that particular uh -huh. question. Uh -huh. The studies that have looked at um, <clears throat> chromosomal replication have really utilized, you know, fluorescent in situ hybridization mm -hmm. to identify, you know, uh, whether there's three copies mm -hmm. or four copies uh -huh. of the chromosome. We don't even really know if all of the chromosomes are, are replicated at this stage. But what we do know is that even if you have one extra copy of a chromosome, just like, you know, Down syndrome, you know, right. trisomy 21, we know that has major impacts on, on function. And so... Um, yeah, it goes the other way. So you have too much mRNA now. Yes. Uh, uh, it, could be, it could be either way, right? Exactly. Even if it, it is be, not folded on itself. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It could be either way. So as soon as you initiate that cell cycle, it's, it's a major problem for, mm. the, for the function of the, of mm. the cell. And, and, and so, uh, you know, keeping these hormones in balance or removing the, the mutations from APP, presenolin 1 and presenolin 2 mm. are really strategies that we can target now. You know, with CRISPR mm. technologies, it may be possible to get these mutations out of these genes and, and offer a solution. And, and the same with um, hormone replacement therapy. Again, it's not perfect, but it's certainly going to help. And a lot of what we do in the lab now is, 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 is to look at stem cell therapies that can be used to regenerate the gonads, to regenerate those structures that used to produce all of those hormones but are now no longer present. They're absent in the case of the follicles in the ovary. And, of course, the loss of uh, Leydig and Sertoli and Spermatogonia cells in the testes. If we can use stem cell technologies to regenerate those structures, we will be able to rebalance these hormones and, I would predict, increase health span, if not also increase uh, lifespan. And, and so this is a big thrust of, of what we uh, are currently uh, doing. And we have some experiments up and running, which we'll, we should have the answers for, uh, the middle of next year or so. So I know I've heard George say it a couple of times that if you could just delay Alzheimer's disease 15 years, you'd lower its incidence by some huge percentage. I don't remember Five that. years, cutting it by half, right, assuming you don't live any longer. Incredible. But, of mm. course, your strategy also means that you'd live longer, too. So yes. you might end up still getting Alzheimer's disease. So lately, it's very common to read somebody say, Pretty soon, people are going to be living hundreds of years. There's even a, some futurists recently I read about it on the web, which is always a true <laughs> place to read about things. It said the first person to live a thousand years has already been born. So why is everybody saying that? Now, is it because they've been reading your work? And that how long really can we... I certainly hope they've been reading my work, and that's a very pro provocative question, of course, uh, or, or statement. Um, most gerontologists, including myself, recognize that we understand enough about the aging process to be able to manipulate it to increase longevity. That's just simply going to happen. Um, it's not a case of, you know, whether it can be done. It, it will happen. It's just technically how we uh, achieve that. Um, we can look at you know other animals as, as examples. You know the, the uh, seawater tortoises, for example, um, live 150 years. If a tortoise can live 150 years, well, why can't a human? 
And again, this gets back to um, reproductive hormones and how they are uh, integrally related to, to longevity. And so um, a tortoise needs to, to live that long because it has a very slow reproductive strategy. It only reproduces once a year when it goes up on land and digs a hole and lays its eggs and, and then goes back out to sea. And of course, most of the, uh, the eggs and offspring are, are predated. And so if it did not live 150 years, it just simply wouldn't be around. Um, humans, on the other hand, really have to live to around 50 years of age in order for the species to continue to, um, to be a species. Uh, a mouse, on the other hand, only needs to live about six months because uh, within the first six months it, it matures, can have eight to 12 offspring, and if it's predated thereafter, it doesn't matter because it already has its genetic material on the ground. Um, so the theory, the, the reproductive cell cycle theory, which came out of this work in Alzheimer's disease, is able to explain many of the caveats that other theories of aging haven't been able to explain for example, why the little brown bat, which weighs less than a mouse, uh, but lives 25 years. And again, it is like the tortoise in that it has a very slow reproductive strategy. It only reproduces once a year when food resources are at a maximum. And, and the, the, uh, the naked tortoise... Naked mole rat. Yes, the naked mole rat is another example. And, and those three animals have one thing in common. They have predator evading... Um, characteristics. You know, one is, has a shell, one digs and burrows, and the other uh, flies. But each of those strategies are very energetically expensive. And so they only feel like they can reproduce at a particular time of the year when there's sufficient resources for them to be able to put those resources into reproduction and not, uh, you know, escaping predators or remaining alive. So there's a, a sort of a cost there to um, to, 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 to reproduction. Um, so if we slowed down a human reproductive cycle, yes, so that women didn't use up all of their follicles until they were 125 years old, yes, then they would live to be at least 125 years old. That's correct. Yes. And and what controls the rate of those? Yeah, that's a great question. Isn't that? So, sorry. There are. It's a um, there. There are numerous factors that determine uh, the the loss of of uh, primordial follicles in in the ovary. Uh, obviously, one is how many follicles a woman is born with. Okay, which of course can be genetically um, manipulated uh, or is dependent on genetics. The second is the rate at which uh, those follicles are lost. And uh, again, there could be uh, innate genetics that determine that, that rate. Um, it's very clear that if you go through puberty later, or you go through menopause, uh, you'll go through menopause later. And of course, if you go through menopause later, it means your axis has been in balance longer, and so you're not uh, subject to the uh, what we call dyotic or death signaling of this dysregulated hormonal milieu. Um, you know, post-menopause. So um, those are the main uh, factors driving uh, the usage of the follicles. And a similar situation occurs in the testes, but there's a slower loss of spermatogonia, latex cells, and Sertoli cells uh, starting at about age 30. So 
there's probably some kind of clock that's driving all that. And if you could just turn the clock down, we would be children longer, which would be great uh, in some ways. And uh, we, uh, is that not, is that not the kind of thing? You yes, can if we, if we can understand, if we can understand the genetics that's regulating uh, the number of follicles in the case of the female again, and, and the rate at which they're used then we can definitely uh, extend longevity. Yeah, but there's this thing in the last, I think, so if I remember correctly, what I read, uh, the drift in the age of first child that has been drifting up, mm -hmm. right? And that seems to be, a, as far as I understand it, there's an evolutionary pressure on that. And uh, I just read a paper on science like last year about it. And there seems to be something like that happening in society, in, in modern society, right? In, when you are in a stable system, the women start, uh, I don't know if they start having period later, but, but they start having children later. Uh, so, maybe. Yeah, so certainly uh, the age of, of, of um, last child is also correlated mm -hmm. with increased uh, longevity. Uh, when um, a woman becomes pregnant, then obviously um, the, the, the loss of follicles, is, it may decrease, and, it, and again with lactation it may decrease. There is some evidence for and against that. Um, it was thought that maybe taking oral contraceptives might actually slow the rate of um, um, follicular genesis and, and, and the rate of usage you know, or, or rate of loss, you know, the rate of atresia in, in the uh, female ovary. But, um, there's uh, some evidence to suggest that irrespective of, of reproductive state and, and uh, oral contraceptive use, um, the, the rate at which uh, follicles uh, ripen and, and are lost is, it remains about the same. We, we have to remember that every um, menstrual cycle, a woman is going to lose somewhere between 500 to 1,000 follicles. Um, those follicles will start to ripen with each um, surge of the uh, of LH and FSH, <clears throat> but only one or maybe two in the case of twins gets to the point of, of releasing a, 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 a oocyte. And as soon as that occurs, there is a negative feedback mechanism to um, uh, drive the atresia of the follicles that had ripened but had not been chosen as the dominant or had not become the do dominant follicle. And so... Um, if we could slow the rate or the number that mm. of follicles that ripens every month, then that would be another way of, of greatly extending um, longevity because uh, a, a woman would be able to continue to have these uh, um, you know, menstrual cycle of, of, of hormones. And, and uh, although these hormones are going up and down, they are you know, in fact in balance. Um, and in the male situation, we also have, you know, a cycle of these hormones, but it's, uh, it's done on a circadian um, basis. So every day we have a slight increase in testosterone, which then comes down again, and the same for all these other hormones. But every, but uh, the Leydig cells don't get used up, I mean, when they're, every time they're used. So they're being lost for some other reason, is that right? Yeah, Leydig and uh, Sertoli cells are definitely lost as we get older. Um, what is actually driving that loss is, is unclear uh, to me at this point. So there's hope for us, too. We could maybe control that. Absolutely. So uh, I, I think that uh, if you can repopulate the, the testes uh, or the ovaries with 
um, the cells that normally produce these hormones and keep, um, keep this axis in balance, then we should be able to offset our aging phenotype and you know, the development of diseases, one of which is going to eventually uh, take us out of a gene pool. So what, uh, what's the limit? I mean, I think a thousand years sounds a little bit excessive, but do you think that we could live to be 200 years old? I, I think we can certainly live into our well into our hundreds uh, if we can uh, develop the technologies to regulate our gonadal uh, reserves and maintain hormone balance. Um, beyond that, I don't know. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Frank. <laughs> this has been. Uh... And th oh, and thanks to Fidel Santamaria and George Perry sure. for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Show. Mm -hmm.